Welcome back to Aspect Radio. Time now to run through our five favorite individual scenes of 2011. We'll try to do it quickly in the name of time here, Corey. So why don't you start us off? Well, this scene's been discussed so much already that I don't see a reason to dwell on it. It's the ending of Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. The final scene where we discover just where, well, possibly where Martha will end up one way or another, either mentally or actually, either way is disturbing. My number five is from The Interrupters, the Steve James documentary that I mentioned before. And, Corey, I want to know if you remember this scene, but it's when this 17-year-old kid who gets out of juvenile prison, his name is Little Mikey, and he is encouraged and he wants to go back to the scene of a crime. And he goes back to a barbershop that he actually held up at gunpoint with some of his other hood rat friends. And just the fact that he's able to confront what he did to some of the victims who are actually there and their emotional response. It's at times overwhelming, and it's one of the most emotionally draining and overwhelming scenes of the year, and it's just a brilliant documentary, and that scene to me stuck out. So, Graham, you're number five. Number five for me is a scene from Bad Teacher where Cameron Diaz and Justin Timberlake engage in dry humping. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was really funny. I'll give you that. That was really funny. I mean, I've never really seen the concept of dry humping used in a movie and for them to do it in such a hilarious and surprising way that sort of reveals that this character on the on the surface is just this all American great guy that any woman would want. That this is his fetish just to me it just makes it one of the best, most surprising, unique, hilarious scenes of the year. That was great. More like amazing. Well, I'm gonna get going. I don't want the kids to see me leaving your room. Yeah. God. We are so simpatico. Maybe next time we can dry hump without our clothes on. I'm pretty sure I'd like that. The look on his face is priceless to you while he's doing it. Just love to see the raw footage of or outtakes of that. Yeah, that's that's really funny. Well, you're number four, Corey. My number four is the charge of the British cavalry and war horse. As I mentioned earlier, Tom Hiddleston is one of my MVPs in that ensemble. He gets a great moment in the scene without revealing much, but this is one of the best shot scenes in the movie and certainly the outcome of it provides the first of many emotional gut punches to come in that film. It's a great scene, and my number four comes from Drive, and it's the botched heist and subsequent car chase and subsequent scene in the motel room, too. So, it's like, all just, 20 minutes? Well, it's all just it's all one big sequence, really, yeah. and it's the first time you really sort of have to catch your breath with this movie, and you sort of lose it. The wind is knocked out of you, and while the movie has been just visually stimulating and interesting up to that point, you really are locked in. They and you are sort of in this situation that it's impossible to get out of at this point so the journey then begins there this character who's sort of in an impossible situation but that sequence really is tense and just exciting so that's my number four graham what's your number four number four for me involves the performance that you rated as best of the year ben it's when gil pender meets hemingway at a cafe in midnight in paris and he's been brought there by F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. Zelda gets bored and leaves, but it leads to my favorite moment in that movie, which is just this brief exchange between F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway that recalls a passage from Hemingway's book, A Movable Feast, where 
he is hanging out with F. Scott Fitzgerald in this era and is trying to kind of let him know that Zelda might not be the right woman for him. And I think this is kind of another reason for movies to exist is, is to take historical characters like this and imagine what it must have been like to be around them and see them in conversation, which is, in a lot of ways, what Midnight in Paris is about. But I just think that it's, every time I see that part, I get lost in it and just kind of even wish that there could be an entire movie using these characters. And obviously, these performances are just so great. That's one of my favorite scenes of the year. Well, my number three is a scene you've already mentioned, Graham. It's uh, the ending of Melancholia, along with the ending of Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, an ending that just left me breathless in the scope and emotional impact that it has, along with another sort of impact. It's just beautiful in its own way, which is kind of strange to say, but it's just one of those classic Lars von Trier moments where you're sort of in awe of the craft and filmmaking, even as you're sort of recoiling from what you're seeing, even though I think the end of melancholy is also perversely sort of happy in a way at least for kirsten dunst's character it's a great moment pretty heavy list from you so far so far but it's gonna get it's gonna get a little better okay well i'll try and lighten things up really quick with my number three and it's from mission impossible ghost protocol it's the burj khalifa hanging scene and the subsequent sandstorm chase which is just in a word awesome it's just one of those sequences where tom cruise is actually doing the stunt where he's hanging so high up in the air from this incredible building oh that's high Okay, now remember, it's a rolling off motion that disengages the bond. When the meter is blue, that's full adhesion. Easy way to remember, blue is glue. And when it's red? Dead. Uh, Here's your cutter, okay? And your server interface, both going back here. One, two. Okay, Ethan, the hotel server's 11 stories up and seven units over, okay? Calm check? Yeah. Copy. So. It's 26 minutes to door knock. Yeah. Outside of just the what's on the surface here of him hanging from a tall building, you're so wrapped up in what the character is trying to accomplish and what his team is trying to do. And when technology fails them, once again in this movie, they have to improvise throughout the entire thing. And that's what makes this one so interesting. And to me, that sandstorm chase is just really exciting and well done. And I was really on the edge of my seat at an action movie. And that's rare these days. So Graham, your number three. Number three is the reunion in War Horse. Definitely the scene that caused the most emotional reaction from me. I'm not even going to lie. I mean, I just let the tears flow. I've been waiting all year for this. I knew it was going to happen. And it's a combination of John Williams' music. You know, that plays a major part. And then also when you hear Jeremy Irvine say the word Joey and he knows that it's him and they finally walk towards each other, Joey kind of gallops towards him after hearing the call. It's just a perfect moment. And it just nailed me, you know, in the, on Christmas Day when I saw it. It was just everything that I'd hoped for. Every, you know, everything was perfect. And, you know, I've gone back to it since. Had a similar, if not quite as intense reaction, but just a perfect ending to what I consider to be a pretty perfect movie. Number two, scene. You insensitive bastard. <laughs> well, okay. Number two. <laughs> Uh, a scene from Drive that showcases the best and worst impulses of Ryan Gosling's driver character. It's 
Of course, the now infamous elevator scene with this really haunting cue from Cliff Martinez. And, well, I don't, I don't want to say too much about it, just in case there's somebody out there who hasn't seen Drive who is inexplicably listening to our podcast. But it's a great character moment coupled with something pretty intense. That's probably all that needs to be said. Well, Graham, you talked about something that brought on the waterworks for you, something that just gut-punched me recently as I watched it again on DVD, is from 50-50, and it's the surgery sequence in that movie. And it's just completely enhanced by this song by this group called Liars, which is called The Other Side of Mount Heart Attack. It's a really beautiful song. But a lot of people criticize movies for using music to manipulate and enhance that sentimentality or provoke certain emotions. And I honestly just think that this is just coupled extremely well and appropriately. But really, the star of this sequence, stars anyway, are the performances given by Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Angelica Houston, who share one of the most tender moments in film in 2011. And it's just uh, heartbreaking for the characters and for the audience as you're just, again, on the edge of your seat, hoping for the best here in this really tragic situation what always gets me in that scene is the moment with his dad yeah at the bedside where his dad talks about how his his new coat and you know knowing that that's possibly the last thing you'll ever say to his father he all he can say is yeah that's that's a nice coat it's heart-wrenching it is and what's hard about it too is you have this character adam who has you know you, you might look at it as been unfairly diagnosed with this disease when he's obviously a good person it's just something that happens and something that you can't explain and he's going into this moment now where he's going to be given anesthesia and he's going to have to go under the knife and it's a situation where he doesn't know if he's ever going to wake up again and his mom doesn't know and he's sharing this moment with his mother that could be his final moment with her and it's just such a powerful scene and the performances are great and really you've got to give major credit to Jonathan Levine who I think goes unrecognized uh, when people talk about this movie and it's just a really emotional sequence and it's worth revisiting. Graham, you're number two. Number two for me is the opening heist of Drive coupled with the opening credit sequence. And unfortunately for me, nothing else that happens in this movie measures up to these two scenes. I think that the opening heist is just brilliant with the way that they combine it with the uh, basketball commentary, but the editing is just superb here, the sound. And and one of my favorite parts in the movie is when he's driving on the highway and the, the helicopter is searching around for him and that searchlight hits his car windshield. That is just like a video game come to life, how he eludes the pursuit of the police in that scene. But then when it just hits with that opening credit song and sequence, that that for me is just one of the best things I saw this year. And unfortunately, nothing else in that movie really rose to that occasion. I mean, I, I for one, went out and bought the Drive soundtrack like the day after I saw that movie. So at least I can relate to you on that aspect of the film. Shame you didn't care for it more. My number one scene of the year, I'm pissed at you, Ben. I'm really pissed at you because I thought this would be unique. But it is the scaling of the Burj Khalifa and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which is one of those action sequences so heavily advertised in the promotions that you just see these trailers and you see the posters and the commercials and you're like, there is no way that that's going to live up to it, to all this hype. But it does. And it's incredibly badass. Just so badass and just seeing that in a crowded theater of people on whatever measure of IMAX screen the Cobb Hollywood 16 has uh, with the added uh, size of the screen and the sound and just the the knowledge that Tom Cruise 
has a very lax insurance policy, apparently, that allows him to dangle precariously hundreds of stories in the air off of a skyscraper. It's just one of those perfect moments of, of cinema, not just of action cinema, but just one of the great things we go to the movies for. My number one scene comes from Steven Soderbergh's horror film, Contagion. All I'll say is that it's the final sequence of the movie, the final moment, and it's just propelled by Cliff Martinez's score, a track that's called Bat and Pig, which is just this minimalistic just treasure. And to me, it's just one of the most gangster cut-to-credits <laughs> moments I've ever seen in movies, really, and it's just totally badass, and I, I love it so much. And that's all I'll say. I don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but that's my favorite. And Graham, you're number one. Number one for me comes from The Adventures of Tintin. It's the motorcycle chase that I think for me, what it did was it took everything that happened in Avatar when it comes to just CGI, visual effects, motion capture, what have you, the combination of all those elements and up the ante to me. I think that, I, you know, I've, I've only been lucky enough to watch that sequence once. I mean, I would assume it might be on YouTube at this point, but I, I couldn't believe what I saw. And I felt like that that sequence, which is one long, uninterrupted take, is something that combines so many different camera moves and sets and props and so many different pieces of action. It's something that kind of worms its way into your consciousness, you know, and I felt like this is something that I'm going to dream about later. I felt just a sort of a sense of kind of like dizziness after it was over, similar to what I experienced with Avatar. And I just think that, you know, I, I can't wait to go back, rewatch it in HD and, and kind of reprocess and break down what happens. And in a way, I don't really want to reprocess what happens. The feeling that I had after seeing that scene was, wow, I cannot believe what I just saw and made for one of the, the greatest moments that I had at the movies all year. It's a really good pick. If I had honorable mentions, I think that would be an honorable mention. I actually do have some Three. honorable mentions. I mean, do you guys have any? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I'll run through them real quick. Yeah, go ahead. From Midnight in Paris, we've talked about it, Hemingway in the car. And also from Midnight in Paris, one of the best scenes of the year is with Salvador Dali, played by Adrian Brody, in a hilarious performance when they're joined by Man Ray and Louis Bunuel. It's great dialogue and just such a funny performance from Adrian Brody. Sabina's first session in A Dangerous Method with a fantastic performance from Kira Knightley. And I'll throw the three scenes, the three great scenes from Warhorse Reunion, Homecoming, and No Man's Land. All three of those from Warhorse are great. The Lions Club Dinner in Take Shelter. Word. And The Escape in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Also word. That's another one of mine. <laughs> and uh, the last one on my list here is Tommy, played by Tom Hardy's character, meeting with his dad, played by Nick Nolte and Warrior, when they meet up with each other in the diner and they go over their plans for training. I'd actually say from Warrior, the scene where Nick Nolte goes to Joel Edgerton's house and talks to him in the lawn. That's, That's probably one. Nick Nolte's best scene in the film. This is one that I don't think either of you will have anywhere near your honorable mentions, but it just missed my list. It's a scene from Final Destination 5. It's probably the scene that makes this movie worthwhile at all. It's a scene in a gymnastics practice arena that is a masterpiece of tension, because as Always in these movies, the death can come from anywhere, and where it comes from in this scene is pretty amazing. It's just amazingly staged and set up. Mock me, if you will, but that is pretty incredible. Also, 
I had a tough choice picking scenes from Joe Wright's Hannah, but I'm going to have to go with the last scene with Hannah and Kate Blanchett in the fairy tale amusement park thing. Uh, it's pretty incredible there as well. Graham, do you have any honorable mentions? Yeah, again, I'm going to keep it brief. I just wanted to mention the train crash sequence from Super 8 was just a really beautifully staged and shot sequence with great sound design. And, you know, that movie is left a lot to be desired on the whole and was kind of a missed opportunity on many levels. I'd like, and I don't know if you guys agree with me or not. But I do. I think that they did have a lot going for it. It really was a really original, well-done scene. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. that That's not a great movie, but that is a really interesting scene as far as big-budget spectacle goes. I just have a lot of problems with that movie, it turns out. On rewatch, it just didn't do anything for me. I just, I feel like the movie is most interesting in the fringe areas there, like when it's not about the big-budget nonsense or the monster or anything. Just the, the story of these kids is what I wanted more of in that movie. When we come back, we will reveal our top five films of 2011. Don't go anywhere. Hey Aspect Radio, this is Matt Scalisi from AL.com and FilmNerds.com and I am here to give you my picks for the best film performance and scene of 2011. My favorite movie of the year, I could go with a couple with the artist being a heavy contender for me, but I think Midnight in Paris takes that spot for me for sentimental reasons really. I'm a longtime Woody Allen fan and it, in addition to this actually being a great movie. It does my heart good to see Woody Allen get some recognition and have some success, so hopefully it leads to more mainstream appeal for Woody Allen in the future. My favorite performance of the year comes from the artist, and it's Jean Dujardin. And I guess the standard I'm using here is that if an actor's job is to make me believe they are somebody else than who they actually are, then I don't think anybody did a better job than Dujardin did in 2011. Uh, I watched that entire movie knowing that he was a French actor, and yet it still came as a shock to me to hear his voice at the end of the film. So, you know, I, I think his performance is so transcendent from just watching him act and, and believing that character that he's created that you really don't remember anything about who the actor is outside of the movie, and I think that's the mark of a great performance. My favorite scene of 2011 comes from Bridesmaids, which I think there are a couple that I could pick from there, but to me there's one scene in that movie that takes that film from being just the best comedy of 2011 to being one of the best movies, period, of 2011, and to being a comedy that I think will transcend the decades, and it's the airplane scene. And basically it's just an opportunity for every member of that cast, all of whom are really talented, to just bring their absolute top-of-their-game improv comedy to the screen. And whether it's Kristen Wiig playing a sort of angry drunk trying to weasel her way into first class, or whether it's Melissa McCarthy hassling the guy that may or may not be an air marshal, and really probably the two most surprising actors in the scene are two of the supporting characters from the movie who are, who are sitting in the back of the plane, and they, they end up having a great moment as well. So to me, that scene holds up even after multiple viewings and I think it's an example of why that movie is special and not just a run-of-the-mill comedy. So those are my picks, guys. Okay, welcome back, people. We are at the home stretch now. We've run out of time to make any last-second adjustments to our list, so now's the time. So, Graham, 
We're going to get back to our top 10 movies. We are at our top five now, so start us off with your number five. Number five is Bellflower, a really small movie that came out in the summer and got a super limited release, but hopefully it'll start showing up in people's Netflix queues and, and on cable. So we're sure we don't need that tank. Yeah. All right. You want to ricochet? Dude, you're holding a 12-gauge, double-barrel, sawed-off shotgun. We're going to be fine. All right. Okay. Wait. Just a great action movie, a great man movie that looks great and was shot on a very low budget. And actually, I, I when I had a chance to talk to the director, McGee, he mentioned that he really liked this movie a lot, too. So it's on people's radars. But Bellflower, the story of two guys who are, you know, into fast cars and hard liquor and babes. And, you know, it's really about the meaning of masculinity and how far you'll go or not go to prove your masculinity. And just a really original, fun, scary movie. Hey, feel free to counter there, Corey. Go I, ahead. I, this is not the time or the place, but I kind of hate the hell out of this movie. <laughs> Why? Uh, it, it's only as effective as – I just I, – I don't know. I can't even articulate why I hate this movie. It's just this ludicrous hipster melodrama with this affectation of apocalyptic violence as the world's most obvious metaphor. I mean, it looks nice, but that's what I'll give it. I just – I can't get into it. Oh, that's really sad. Ben, you have yet to see it, right? Yeah, I have yet to see it. I really want to catch it on Blu-ray. Corey, um, have you seen The Vow yet? I have not seen The Vow as a matter of fact. Graham, would you say that Corey's not manly enough for Bellflower? Well, as of now, I'll say, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I, I thought Corey, you know, I've seen his facial hair uh, potential, <laughs> so I know that he does have the testosterone, but it's kind of sad, I think. You know, I think that this movie, I don't know what you're talking about, about obvious metaphors. I think that these characters are faced with challenges that are realistic in some ways. Some ways are a little uh, absurd, but that's what makes the movie kind of out there and crazy and fun. I don't know what you went into it expecting or if you read into it a little bit too much, but for me, I just had a lot of fun with this movie. I'll go ahead and give you my number five. It's a film that I saw last night, and it's David Cronenberg's A Dangerous Method. And Graham, you talked a lot about why it works so well, and I agree with all of those points. I'm a big Cronenberg fan. I've seen almost all of his films now. I have yet to see Rabid or M. Butterfly and Spider. Those are the ones that have eluded me so I've, far. I haven't seen Rabbit or M. Butterfly. <clears throat> I, I, Spider's really good, though. Yeah, but to me, this is it's right up there. It's not on the surface as, in terms of Cronenberg, as strange, I think, or, or just weird. It doesn't have that. Uh, what was the term you used before? You have this like grotesque body, body horror. horror. I yeah. think it's, yeah, that's the way you put it before. You don't really get as much of that. There are two sort of violent moments in this that are small when they happen and are a little more subtle compared to the rest of his work. But really, what this is about are the ideas of these characters and how they're unearthed. There's a rumor running around Vienna that you've taken one of your patients as a mistress. It's absolutely untrue. Well, of course it is. So I've been telling everyone. What's being said? I don't know. The woman's been bragging about it. Is somebody sending out anonymous letters? Usual sort of thing. Bound to happen sooner or later. It's an occupational hazard. Yes. 
I hope I'd never be stupid enough to get emotionally involved with a patient. You have these wonderfully played characters, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, and this Sabina character played by Karen Knightley, who all are sort of unmasking and are at the forefront of the dawn of psychoanalysis. And what's so cool about this movie is where it could just be this film depiction of these historical characters who simply spout off these ideas that were created by these actual people. It's how Cronenberg sort of applies these ideas to their lives and you have them sort of analyzing each other and those analyses are what essentially shape psychoanalysis from that point on and to me it's just completely fascinating. As someone who is interested in psychoanalysis going into the movie, it definitely had an advantage from the get-go, but this movie is very talky, and it had the potential to be just very droll and boring, but in no way is it. I think the dialogue is exquisitely written here by Christopher Hampton, right, from his own play, and it's performed extremely well. <clears throat> and I agree with Graham. The aesthetics are very pleasing. The period is captured beautifully, and I love the costumes in this movie. But really, the reason to watch are the performances. They're just captivating, and uh, you get as frustrated as they do at times, and you get as fascinated as they are when they're dis- making these new discoveries about this movement that they launch uh, way back when in the early part of the 20th century. And you have all of this foreshadowing, I guess, from some of the characters uh, of what's to come in during World War II. And we're given information at the end of the movie about the fates of the characters and some of those things, some of these predictions that were uh, explicitly made and sort of implicitly made from some of the characters sort of come true in these kind of sad ways. But it's a beautiful film, in my opinion, and one of Cronenberg's best here on this incredible role that he is on late in his career. It's so surprising that this movie didn't get any kudos from the Academy because it's pretty accessible. Cronenberg's been there before. I mean, it really makes you think does this have to do with some kind of political aspect of the awards where they have to spread the love among the different uh, distributors and studios because Sony Pictures Classics obviously has Midnight in Paris in the mix and maybe some some other titles as well. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but it's just bizarre to me that this movie missed the mark. Yeah, it did deserve it, and it's a shame it didn't get recognized. I just don't think Sony Pictures Classics really pushed it very much. I mean, they had the horse that they were backing in Midnight in Paris – they had a sort of late season champion in a separation, which ended up getting more than the foreign language film nomination they expected. It's one that I need to rewatch because I did admire it and I did like it, but not to the degree that you two did. And I agree that it is a lot more accessible than I would have expected it to be. But at the same time, I do think it might be mildly stagey in a way that is displeasing at least to the cinematic art form. It's a film that I need to give a second look to because obviously Cronenberg is one of my favorite directors and and what I did get out of this film I did enjoy a a great bit. But it, it could just be something as simple as the Academy just didn't see it. Well, and one last note on it. We talk about the accessibility. This movie's actually pretty funny. It's very clever and has a lot of lines that are going to incite laughter from an audience. I saw it in Tuscaloosa, Alabama last night where it played for one time at the Bama Theater, and the theater was packed full of people who obviously wanted to see this movie. And when those moments came, the theater erupted with laughter, and I found that very interesting that, I, you know, honestly, I don't know if I've seen a David Cronenberg movie in a theater where that many people have been laughing, which is interesting. A lot of laughter and a history of violence when I saw it. Yeah, it's really funny. There are some parts that are 
funny. Well, there's some people laughing when they probably shouldn't be, too. In That's true. In parts That's of that certainly movie. true. But let's get your number five, Corey. My number five is Jeff Nichols' film Take Shelter for many of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Like I said, I think it's it's definitely a film of the times that does tap into a lot of the very real anxieties that, that modern Americans face as far as the current financial situation goes, but just a general anxiety as well, a fear of the future and a fear for your family to do what's right for them and to protect them. And then this growing anxiety that maybe you are not the person who will be able to protect them or provide for them. Maybe you are the problem. It's just a lot of really frightening and sometimes really touching themes explored here in this film by its lead actors, Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain. And it's, it's just a really tense, really involving picture. Yeah, fantastic. It just barely missed my list. I saw it recently, so it's still fresh in my mind, and it's one that people should explore and explore often. You're not going to get it done with one viewing. I'm curious to know, because you've seen it. Graham, have you seen this one? No, not yet. I kind of want to talk about the ending without talking about the ending, because... I think like Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, this is one that will divide people in terms of its implications. But for me, the ending really makes the movie. And yet, as my wife can attest, we saw this movie in the theaters and I walked out really unsure about it. It was only upon rumination that I truly understood what the ending was going for. And it's one that does deserve attention, but it deserves, when you give it attention, your full attention and full consideration of exactly what it's trying to say, but highly recommended for me. Totally agree. Graham, you're number four. Number four for me is The Artist. You know what? If this movie wins Best Picture, even though it's nominated against some of the movies that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, I'm going to be fine with it because I had just a blast watching this movie. I love the story. I love the way they did it. Love the performances. Other, I do have two problems with it. The use of the Vertigo music, which I think is very recognizable. And I think it's just, it was a mistake. It should have been used as source music in a rough cut. And they should have gone to their future Oscar winning composer and said, hey, you know what? Do your best with this scene. Give me some music that works with this scene. Instead of, in what I, I feel is sort of an insult to the work of Bernard Herrmann uh, in recycling that, you know, this is not a Tarantino movie. This is a, a movie that should have been totally original, and I feel like it was a mistake to do that. I also don't like the fact that he put a gun in his mouth when he was considering attempting suicide. I think that he should have put it to his head. A little harsh, because uh, this is a movie I think kids should see. But those are my two problems with it. I just wanted to put put that out there that I, you know, I do have two little issues with it. That being said, this is one of the best movies of the year, and I cannot wait to see it again. I'm tempted to go see it again before uh, Sunday so that when it wins, I can kind of feel really good about it. But I love this movie. Let me just say this, okay, and we won't spend too much time on it. We already did when we reviewed this. The Bernard Herrmann thing, I don't think it's an insult at all. In fact, I think it's a pretty nice homage that it pays. And if you're going to get rid of that, why not get rid of the other references the movie makes throughout the entire thing? But it's only as recognizable as you suggest it to be because you're such a big fan of Vertigo. You too, Corey, and you're such a big fan of that music. I guarantee you almost, I would say 100 out of 100 people would not be able to whistle you that theme if you asked them to on the street. Ignorance is bliss. Hey, well, <laughs> honestly, the comparison has been made to something like, say, if someone used the Jaws theme. And I know that, look, they're not one and the same. It's not as recognizable. But 
honestly, if you ask people to list the top 10 movie themes off the top of their head, I doubt Vertigo would even be a part of the conversation. It is Bernard Herrmann for sure, and people know this guy's music, but in my opinion, it's not that recognizable, so I don't see it as great of a crime, but I do agree that they probably just should have let the composer do his job during that sequence. Yeah, I, I don't think it's disrespectful. I just think it's an artistic misstep which I argued for on the show in which we reviewed it. Like Graham said, this guy composed a whole film's worth of music already. Why not give him a shot at the big time, so to speak, by letting him score the climactic moment of the film? That's all. I think he could have pulled it off. Well, moving on to my number four here, if we're going to talk about a film that is heavy with nostalgia in terms of its themes, there's one here, too, that on the surface seems to celebrate nostalgia, but really the film serves as a warning sign to people who embrace it as much as they do, and it's Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen's movie, and it's really kind of confusing because the way this movie is advertised and the way this movie is celebrated, even from the people who have seen it, they seem to think and really push the idea that this is a film that stresses the importance of nostalgia. And it is important that we remember these golden ages fondly and that we're able to sort of celebrate them now and think of them fondly. But the idea that you shouldn't want to live in the past, that you should live in the present and take advantage of these great things and these opportunities that you have, whether it's success professionally or you find love in the present, those opportunities are still there. You don't have to go searching for art of the past to make yourself happy because there are still people doing it now who are as good in so many ways. But you'll always have Paris in the 20s. And I think it's just really nicely told here in Midnight in Paris. And it doesn't beat you over the head with that idea. The movie's not preachy at all. It comes to that conclusion quickly and sort of late in the movie. But I think that when it does, it's really well done. There's so much great dialogue throughout the whole thing, but just the conclusion that Gil Pender reaches late in the movie that, you know what, I'm, I think I'm okay with the present because, the, you know, this is a, a period in time they don't have antibiotics, which I thought was just such a hilarious line. And it just really introduces that theory as simply as possible. And really, this movie is nothing short of just delightful. It's just a really nice film to sit back and enjoy. And the first time I saw it, I really liked it, but it felt kind of slight. And I didn't really embrace it the way I did the second time. But yeah, again, when I revisited it on DVD, it to me is just pure Woody Allen. He tells a, a new and interesting story without covering most of the ground he has before, which he has in some of his really good recent movies. And to get this fresh Woody Allen again so late in his career, which is a theme here, I think, in 2011, it's just so refreshing and it's really just a lovely film. My number four is uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, this terrific sort of neo-noir L.A. pastiche, this sort of loving tribute to 80s action films while also being its own European art house influenced animal. Another great ensemble cast here with Ryan Gosling, the wonderful Carrie Mulligan, uh, Albert Brooks, of course, being cast dramatically against type as this menacing gangster type. Brian Cranston, Christina Hendricks, you know, all at the service of, of Nicholas Winding Refn's very influenced, yet I'd say very unique eye towards the crime movie and towards L.A. as a location. Featured some of the year's most thrilling moments, like Graham said, the opening scene, and like you said, the heist gone wrong. 
but also some of the most intriguing and interesting character moments with Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan's relationship, and then a very moving ending, an unexpectedly moving ending, I think, for a movie like this. It's what you would describe as pure cinema, I would say. You know, like a couple years ago, one might describe Inglorious Bastards as pure cinema. Well, this feels like that to me. It, it feels like of a piece with, with a, a great amount of cinematic history, but something new entirely. That's why it's my number four. It's one of the best movies of the year. Graham, you're number three. Number three for me is Midnight in Paris. I always say that I was born too late. Mm. Aussi. For me, La Belle Époque Paris would have been perfect. Really? Yes. Better than now? You know, the whole sensibility, the street lamps, the kiosks, the horse and carriages, and Maxim's then. Mm. You speak very good English. No, not really. No, you do. How long have you been dating Picasso? My God, did I just say that? You really summed it up beautifully. All I'll add to it is that when I first saw the movie, I, like Gil Pender in the movie, wanted to return to that experience as fast as possible. He he wakes up the next day and he gets right back to that spot where the car picks him up because he wants to jump into that world again. And that's the way I felt. I wanted to get back in that theater as soon as possible. It's been a while since I've had that kind of a feeling where you just kind of want to start it over from the beginning right after it's over. And Ben, I, you know, I, I love your, your points that you make kind of the, about the darker aspects of the movie, but there's a lot of joy and fun in this movie as well. And it's one of the best movies of the year, uh, one of the best movie movies that Woody Allen has made in his career, and I love it. Well, I think you made a great point earlier about how you'd want to see more movies like this where filmmakers take these historical figures and were able to spend time with them and see what it might have been like to sort of hang out with them in a very casual setting. And I think that this movie does it better than maybe any movie ever has. And it's the first time we've ever been able to really spend this much time with these characters and they're characters I'm extremely interested in. My number three is Steve James' The Interrupters. There were a lot of great documentaries this year. Graham, you mentioned Bill Cunningham, New York. I'd also like to throw in Senna, the Formula One documentary. Buck, the film about Buck Branahan, the um, sort of real-life horse whisperer who served as a consultant for Robert Redford on that film and has led a very interesting life of his own. And then Tabloid, Errol Morris's new film. But for me, The Interrupters is hands down the best documentary of the year. For all of the reasons that you said earlier, it just features some of the highest highs and lowest lows of any movie that I saw in 2011. And this is the sort of movie that if I thought a movie could really make the world a better place this would be it because the depiction of these real life heroes these people who are sometimes literally putting themselves between two conflicting parties and in harm's way i mean it's just a really moving portrait to the sort of person who takes such an active role in their community to go out and actively try to make their area a better place. It's just a really moving, really terrific portrait of of this very real problem. Yeah, it's an extremely real problem, which is so scary. But what's so beautiful about it is that it makes such a wonderful point that you can solve these problems with the power of just conversation. And And listening. Yeah. Yeah, just hearing people out, having them air their grievances with words instead of bullets. And it's just, I mean, just the people that Steve James and the situations that he captures. I mean, it's just one of those 
films where you consider him very fortunate to have been at the right place in the right time, but very unfortunate that any of this had to happen at all. It's just amazing what he was able to capture and the moments that he was able to get in this film. It's just a wonderful movie. It really is. And my number three is actually what I would consider the dark horse that just completely skyrocketed the second time I saw it. I really liked it again the first time, but 50-50 just, I don't know what it was about the second time I watched this movie, but it's just a film that really appeals to me in my sensibilities, I think. It's a film about young people, first of all, facing serious and tragic problems, and it's just interesting to see what happens when someone that is close to our age has to face something like that because it doesn't happen that often. What he has is an extremely rare condition and it just knocks him over the head and his life completely changes. And this movie teaches you really to take advantage of these things that you have. You know, you you don't know how long that you have and you really have to sort of live like, you, you know, you won't have it for much longer. And I think it does it, you know, it's not a cheesy way. It's not a condescending way. It's just right for me. It speaks my language, I think. And it has to me one of the best soundtracks of the year it's right up there with drive in my opinion just some really well put together songs unfortunately the soundtrack isn't even available i don't think which sucks but it's really good and you just have such fantastic performances from joseph gordon levitt seth rogan and angelica houston and anna kendrick among others this would be a film that i would just heartily recommend to people my age and really honestly any age i think that this is someone that if people can get past the fact that it's about cancer which is something that a lot of people don't even want to talk about they don't even want to face especially when they're watching a film a comedy they want to escape from something like that but i think it's admirable that seth rogan and, and will riser who actually lived through this that they were able to make a comedy about it because i think that when you're faced with something like this it's important that you do maintain your sense of humor because if you don't then your situation is going to be even more dire than it already is. So it's a really beautiful film, extremely well done. So Graham, your number two. My number two is Steven Spielberg's War Horse. You know, we, we've talked a lot, you guys, and obviously you've seen my Twitter rants on, on about this movie, which I stand by to this day, and there probably will be more rants to come in the next few days. But I just think that Spielberg stripped it all down and made a classic movie using rules from the classic era of filmmaking. You know, people are making comparisons to David Lean and John Ford. It's obvious why they do that, but then he injects his own sensibilities and his own visual style that makes it something original, but that wouldn't exist without the work of those two guys. And we've already talked about the performances and some of the key scenes that we love. It all adds up to just being what I still consider to be one of the best movies ever made. And I think that people are going to watch this movie for years and it's going to stick around. And it's going to be something that airs on, you know, ABC around the holidays, a movie that people will treasure. And it's a real shame that the majority of movie audiences failed to give the movie the recognition that it deserved. And, you know, Corey, you mentioned earlier that The Help made $177 million. Last I checked, War Horse made... 78 million domestically and uh, not much more overseas. And it's, it's amazing to me that, that a movie like The Help made a hundred million more dollars than War Horse. It's baffling to me, but that's the way it is. I just, I just hope that more people will, will give this movie a chance and obviously take the two hours and 46 minutes that it will take to give it that chance. But I love this film. I've seen it uh, twice with a few random viewings of key scenes thrown in. You know, I'm just glad that I got to see it the way I did on Christmas Day with with friends and family. It was a truly special moment. 
Well, Corey, I think we switched places in our order here. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm not. gonna just go ahead and my number two also is Warhorse. Just while we're on the topic, you know, for me it, it was so exhilarating because you know I, I'm such a big Steven Spielberg fan. Never mind that I haven't seen ET. That's beside the fact, Corey. <laughs> uh, I'm such a big fan of his, and he was such a big part of my life growing up. It sort of disappointed me, I guess, the direction that he eventually started to take last decade anyway, while I still think he was making very good films, I didn't think it was the same Spielberg. And that's to his credit that he's trying different things. But I feel like War Horse is a return to form. It's a return to that Spielberg that I grew up with. And it, again, if we're talking about appealing to my sensibilities, this is just a movie. Yes, it's very sentimental, but I think it just hits all the right notes in that regard. I just felt everything from beginning to end in this movie and I don't know I just you know I, I hope that Spielberg plays in this key for a while again because it's just him at his best just the scope of it the way it looks Janusz Kaminski does such beautiful work and John Williams scores among his best in the last few years so again like I've mentioned before on the show I encourage people to go back and listen to the review but uh, War Horse is just one for me that is just uh, almost 100% just magical movie experience I love it so much I really do so let's get to your number two my number two is Martin Scorsese's Yugo as you put it so well earlier love letter to cinema uh, in ways that the artist also is but but this I think exceeds that movie for me just based on the craft and skill of one of our greatest living filmmakers if not the greatest living filmmaker trying something completely new uh, computer imagery heavy children's film shot in 3d which is the medium that i saw it in and the 3d of course i feel personally was probably uh, integral to the experience and one of the reasons i love this movie so much apart from the fine craftsmanship elsewhere including in its in its ensemble cast so ably led I, I would say by the heart of the movie uh, Aza Butterfield and uh, by Ben Kingsley playing this wonderfully tragic figure this mysterious figure in, in the train station you also have wonderful memorable supporting roles from people like Helen McCrory from Jude Law what does he do he's a wind-up figure like a music box this is the most complicated one I've ever seen by far See, this one, this one, can write. Magicians used machines like this when I was a boy. Some walked, some danced, some sang, but the secret was always in the clockwork. Look at that. Can we fix him? Of course we can fix him. From Michael Stuhlbarg of the Coen Brothers, A Serious Man, who is just dynamite in his few scenes. It all adds up to one of the most memorable and moving film experiences of 2011 for me. And it's just, this is a movie that I had, I would say, an emotional response to in ways that you all are describing your response to War Horse, which is a movie that I also liked a great deal that didn't make my list. But War Horse is great, but Hugo moved me in all of those ways that I, I would say you're describing. Well, Graham, I have to say that you're playing your hand pretty well here because I had a feeling what your number one was going to be going into this conversation. So lay it on us. What's your number one movie of 2011? It's an unconventional choice. I mean, it really is. But I guess you could say that it would 
fall under a couple of different categories that you, you wouldn't expect when naming your top 10 favorite movies of the year. One, it would have to be a short subject. And two, you would have to call it documentary, even though it's not really a documentary. What I'm going to say is my pick for best movie of the year is a, a video that was posted on YouTube called F5 Tuscaloosa Tornado by, as far as I know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama residents, Nate Hewitt, I believe it's pronounced, and Ryan Chandler. This is a video that <clears throat> over half a million people have viewed as of today that chronicles the approximately 15 minutes where we get to see the last images that I know of of Tuscaloosa, Alabama before it was struck by the tornado, and this is taken by two guys who are just would-be storm chasers, college-age kids driving around in an SUV trying to get footage of this incoming tornado. And like I said, they're driving around. You get to see the last images of Tuscaloosa that intact prior to the tornado that anybody will ever see. And then there's this dynamic between the two guys where one of them is sort of steering the ship. One of them's a captain, and one of them's the first mate. Initially, they're very excited about the tornado. Then it gets into a situation where their lives are in danger and they have to evade the tornado. That tension I mentioned rises between the two of them. Chandler, do not go back that way. Nate, film it. I am. There's two of them. We need to, we need to go that way. No, Chandler, we're damn it, we're go fine. back. We're fine. Chandler, go the back. I'm not kidding. We don't know if this thing can change directions. We're not experts. One of them is sort of ordering the other one around, and the other one sort of submits and follows his orders. And just prior to this also, they're driving around, and one, at one point they just initially see the tornado, and one of them says something like, damn it, if these trees would just get out of the way. And little did they know that in a few minutes those trees would be gone. After the tornado passes across the interstate, I mean, it's it's the video is insane. It's uh, just one of the most unique uh, instances of capturing a natural disaster on video. And then they are plunged into the destruction that the tornado has just has caused seconds ago when they see the damage. But then a woman gets in the car and is ranting and raving hysterically about the fact that her phone doesn't work, that she thinks her dog is dead, that other people are trapped. Come on. Get in, get in. Come on. My dog. Oh, my God, my dog. Are you okay? Is, hey, are people okay? I don't know. I can't. I Nate. can't. Nate, we got to. I can't call nobody. We got to go help you. We, uh, we, we got to get out. Oh, my God, y'all. Can I use your phone? Yeah. My phone. Oh, my God. It just went right through. What, what, what number do you need? It just went right through the city. No, one. Somebody. Hey, the, the, police, the police are all over the place. <sighs> Oh. oh my god, my dog dead. Oh my god. Oh. Can you Nate, call? Nate, we gotta go. Like, <laughs> like, there's tons of people out there. I know. Can you? I can't do this. Oh my god. Oh my god, y'all. 826, 46, 45, 7. Actually, I'll try to call. Y'all, I believe people stuck. I've already tried to call. I believe it. What, people are stuck? I, I, I scream and help. And I 
I hear people screaming. Right, let's let's see All if right. we can get down that road. I've never seen anything like this that tells the kind of story that it does. It's found footage, I guess you could say. It's one take, but it's obviously for us, you know, it means a lot because this is our town and it affected all of us. But what it is as a piece of storytelling to me is is really just one of the most powerful bits of video that I've ever seen. And, you know, I think should uh, be preserved in museums so that people will, will know what was going on during uh, this event. Well, I have to say that's an interesting pick, Graham. You know, the way you described it certainly justifies it. And I agree with you in that that video and so many others really it's a document in history, especially the history of Tuscaloosa. But you know, what's interesting is I actually know one of the guys who was in the video, Ryan Chandler, whom I went to high school with, and I spoke to him the night of April twenty seventh and after he videotaped the tornado and just the the tone of his voice was just uh, kind of amazing just in that, I mean, this was a guy who just literally saw this this horrible thing that just ripped through the heart of his city, you know, and he, he was only uh, a couple hundred feet away from it. You know, he was a hundred feet away from his own death, really, when you look at it that way. And just to kind of hear him describe it moments after he'd done it, he was, you know, he was obviously shaken. And it was just the fact that he and his friend were, stupid enough and brave enough to document it the way they did, I think. You know, again, it speaks to their stupidity in a way because you never want someone in that situation, but it also speaks, again, to their bravery and their character and the fact that they're the heroes of this story that you're talking about, too, and that they go and immediately, they, you know, before they shut the camera off and get to work, they take one person in, someone that they don't even know, and they go looking for people and they go looking for ways to... Uh, help the city rebuild in the literally the immediate aftermath of that storm. So very well put, Graham, and that's a really interesting pick. Corey, I mean, I'll just go ahead and jump into my number one. And it's one that, you know, I praised on the show before we reviewed it back in September, was it? And it's Steven Soderbergh's film Contagion. And I revisited this movie on Blu-ray in the past couple of weeks. And I have to say it held up. It, at that point, was my favorite movie of the year. And I was so happy to revisit it, and it just had the pace, it had the performances, it had the music, and it just had this dreadful tone from beginning to end and just some of the tightest tension in movies, I think, that I saw this year. And really, there's no better contemporary filmmaker than Steven Soderbergh. You know, there might be someone you like more, but I just don't think you can make a clear argument that someone is better than him. I just think he can do anything. And the fact that after he's done so much in his career, such a diverse filmography, the fact that he attacks a horror story essentially with such realism and he attacks it in the way that he does with uh, screenwriter Scott Burns here in just a fantastic A-list ensemble cast. I just love that no one is safe here in this story of this pandemic that just spreads like wildfire. And I just think the way that he tells it in this very broad way in terms of scope is just really beautiful. And I know that, you know, some people see some flaws in it in terms of some of the subplots that the movie has, yet I have to say I was just as intrigued by those as I, I was, I guess, maybe the main ones where you're following the people who work at the Center for Disease Control, folks like Lawrence Fishburne and Kate Winslet. And, Corey, I know you had a problem with not necessarily this performance but this subplot, but Marion Cotillard, to me, is one of the driving forces of this film. I have to say that some of my favorite stuff in this film is when she is zeroing in on the birth 
I guess, of this disease and where it started in the world, really, when she's sifting through this security tape. It's just where that subplot goes that bothers me. I don't know. I think lost subplot bothers me. I just me. think it has such a great emotional payoff at the end of the movie. It just totally works for me. It's not earned, though. Oh, I disagree. I really do. I do. I just, I, I totally disagree. And for me, this, it's the most fun I think I had in a movie theater. And I, I was just, again, it's another edge of your seat film in 2011. There were so many of those this year. And again, I want to see more guys like Steven Soderbergh attack genres they're not accustomed to or just th- that aren't necessarily uh, a natural fit to their styles and their aesthetics. So I want to see Steven Soderbergh make a horror movie and I want to see other directors make westerns and science fiction films. So I hope that he and inspires other directors to take chances kind of like this but contagion is just to me again the most fun i had in a theater and i just don't know what i could say is better ben i i respect your pick and i've only seen the movie once obviously it did not make my list in any of my categories but i want to give it another chance and hopefully i'll come around and see in it what you know what you see in it I didn't initially, and I'm a big fan of of Soderbergh. Some might even call me a Soderbergh apologist. But the movie, you know, what I felt during and after, I could sort of, you know, point to uh, what I mentioned earlier about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This is just my initial reaction. And I also think, and Corey, back me up here. I I could be wrong, but Ben, you're you're one of the only people that has, has had, in my opinion, this intense of a reaction to this movie. And maybe the only person that's put it on, uh, their top 10 list. So it's, it's a unique pick. And I, I agree with some of the stuff Corey's saying, but I'm definitely going to go back and give it another chance. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a good movie. It's a movie that I admire a great deal, but it's one that I, I have problems with. I think it's flawed. I think that it's almost in a lot of ways, uh, really excellent. As I said, during our review, a really excellent multi-hour HBO miniseries, unfortunately condensed into about an hour and 45 minutes. It's something that I really wanted to like a lot more than I did, but for what it is, I mean, it's excellent filmmaking. It's what you always expect and get from Steven Soderbergh, and the cast is game. I just don't think it really adds up to exactly what I wanted it to, to add up to. But again, I mean, it's a, it's a very good movie. It's just not, just didn't fully work for me. I'm asking also, is Ben the only one that, that has had this intensive reaction that you can I- think of? That I can think of, maybe. I, I, I can't say that for sure. Well, you know, I, I read a lot of top ten lists as the year sort of wound down, and I did see it pop up on a lot of, say, like the online writers like you would find on like Ain't It Cool or Chud and places like that. So I'm not necessarily alone in my praise for it, especially at the end of the year. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think I'm one of the only ones that I know of that has it at the top of their lists. But really, Graham, you talk about how you were left sort of cold, I guess, in this movie. And, and, you know, that's something that we're used to. It's Soderbergh. He makes these cold and calculated movies that sort of act as procedurals in some ways. But to me, this movie doesn't zero in on one emotional through line. There are so many. You're working with an ensemble cast of characters here. And really, you know, you have the main character of this film, which is the disease itself, this bird flu of sorts that is affecting the globe. And so to me, you have all of these in in my opinion cathartic moments where you have these nice you have these nice little moments i guess at the end with these characters where their stories in my opinion are concluded in a way that they need to be concluded i'm not articulating this extremely well right now but you say like the the Marion Cotillard 
conclusion is uh, sort of open, whereas you have like the Matt Damon conclusion. In his story, I found extremely engrossing. You have that, has a kind of a nice little bow wrapped around it. And then you also, really what worked for me, the emotional center, I guess, that, that sort of grabbed me was in this actress, I don't know her name, but she kind of comes out of nowhere in this movie, but she plays when she makes a discovery towards the end of this film. I really feel like that emotionally, that's where it really pays off because she has a moment with her father and she's able to sort of share this knowledge that she has. And, you know, that's just one of the handful of moments that work so well for me from an emotional standpoint. But there are also moments technically that are brilliant throughout the movie. And then there are just moments where I laugh out loud when I'm watching it, like I do at a lot of horror films, like a certain autopsy scene in this film, which is just disgusting and brilliant. So I just think it's just the perfect storm in terms of what I'm looking for in a movie from one of my favorite directors. I agree with you on that autopsy scene. I mean, I'd kind of hoped initially that they were going to go with that same kind of tone where the movie didn't really take itself too seriously and was just all about fun. But you have to admit that it doesn't keep that tone for the entire time. I mean, I'm not saying that it should keep one tone or the other, but I just felt like it sort of changed moods after that. I don't know. I think it kept the same mood. I think it stayed pretty consistent with its tone where you had these fun moments sort of sprinkled in there where Soderbergh sort of reared his sixth sense of humor's head, like in the autopsy scene and in the opening scene with himself being on the other end of a really uh, sort of cheesy phone call in reference to an affair. So I think that there are little moments like that riddled throughout the film, but I think that the movie maintains the same tone relatively consistently. So let's move on to you, Corey, and your number one film of the year. I, I think this is probably pretty predictable, but it's Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, the film that moved me and, and wowed me more than any other movie that I saw in 2011 with the scope and breadth of its of its vision and the ideas behind it. Philosophically, I would say this is probably one of the densest movies I've ever seen. It juggles a great number of ideas about who we are as humans and and what our place is in the universe and how we come to be the people that we come to be with no less a look than a look at the creation of the universe itself and and how we came to be here it's heady stuff to be sure but it's it's also capably humanized i think by this very uh moving story at its center of a young man played by hunter mccracken growing up in the 1950s in texas with sort of torn between the impulses that his parents represent uh, jessica chastain representing a well as the movie puts it the way of grace and and brad pitt representing the more selfish way of nature the young man eventually grows up to be sean penn in the present day sequences in the film uh, and the uh, more abstract sequences that Penn also takes place in, but it all adds up to be this perhaps a bit obtuse, but really excellent a bit of filmmaking from Terrence Malick, one of our great visionary directors, uh, perhaps his most accomplished work yet here. I would call it the quintessential Terrence Malick movie. I mean, and it's also probably the most difficult Terrence Malick movie. Yes, and none absolutely. of them, you know, none of them are easy codes to crack necessarily. Some might be more accessible than others, but this one is really a doozy in that regard. But it is extremely beautiful, both visually, viscerally, 
and thematically it's it explores so many different things that you're going to go home and think about for days and days and now months in our cases here so yeah i've only seen it the one time can't wait to watch it again so good pick yeah, yeah Corey, i'm i'm gonna make your little speech that you just made my ringtone <laughs> Awesome. awesome. Let's just quickly, as fast as we possibly can, run through our honorable mentions. I don't know if we have any. Oh, here. I have a ton. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, I'll run through mine real fast before you. And they include Margin Call, Beginners, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Rango, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Melancholia, Bridesmaids, Tree of Life, The Artist, and The Descendants, The Help, Shame, Take Shelter, and that about rounds it out. So. Yours? Maybe we should let Graham go first. Okay. We we'll probably only have like two. Okay, me? Okay. Yeah. Harry Potter, part two. Uh, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, part one. The Hangover 2. Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Fast Five. Mission Impossible 4. Cars 2. Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Thor and Pena. <laughs> <laughs> There's some really good movies in there, though. Okay, okay Corey, let's, let's hear from you. All right, this is in, this would be from my number 11 down to my number whatever. First of all, let me mention some movies that I didn't get to see that I regret. Uh, I haven't seen Pena, obviously, I want to. I haven't seen Werner Herzog's Into the Abyss, which is a movie that I feel potentially could have garnered some attention from me. I really, really regret not having the chance to see We Need to Talk About Kevin, because I'm a pretty big Lynn Ramsey fan, Tilda Swinton fan. And then, of course, the Iranian film The Separation, which has garnered so much attention, was Roger Ebert's favorite movie of the year, and uh, really would have liked to see that. But these movies just don't open around here, so not not much you can do about it. But uh, my honorable mentions in order, The Artist, Bill Cunningham, New York, Martha Marcy May Marlene, Melancholia, Young Adult, Moneyball, Win-Win, Attack the Block, Midnight in Paris, War Horse, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, The Future, the new Miranda July film, Beginners, Buck, Senna, Tabloid, and Hannah. What a year. Yeah. I mean, I think that we can all agree that this was an above-average year following an above-average year. So, you know, as cynical as we might be about Hollywood, um, and we have plenty of reasons to be, as Graham just listed out one by one there with his honorable mentions, you have to say that we the past couple of years have been exceptional. So, yeah, I mean, some things I just want to run through here. And I'll say one regret of 2011 that I had. I saw Melancholia, and I watched it on demand, but one regret that I had was that I didn't get to see it on a big screen. I didn't either. And that is such a big screen movie that it's just it's great that they made it available the way that they did and it certainly wasn't going to come to our theater anytime soon yet the Bama theater was able to bring it for its winter film series but that is just one we should have seen on a multiplex screen but anyway let's quickly run through what we think was the most overrated movie of 2011 I couldn't just pick one I've got three okay name them I don't think you're gonna like them Okay. okay Uh, obviously, David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay. Um, as I understand. We've discussed that. Yeah. yeah. A second watch of Alexander Payne's The Descendants was not kind. I saw it at the Cobb. It didn't improve. And I probably like this movie more than the other two I just mentioned, if only for sheer bravado, but Steve McQueen's shame didn't completely work for me. I feel like the cleverness and obliqueness behind those characters' background only served to sort of distance 
me from the movie, which is not, I think, the intended effect. Well, I've got to say, I have one here, and it's Moneyball, which I think is a good movie, and I think that it's just fine. But that's all I really think it is, is fine. There's nothing that really reaches out and grabs me about that movie, and that includes the performances, the story, the dialogue, which is, you know, we're fresh off of the social network, and to get another Aaron Sorkin partially written script, that's a pleasure. And I think that there's some of that in there, but for the most part, it just doesn't really do it for me. And the fact that it's up for so many Oscars here, it just didn't seem like that kind of film, and I'm interested in why so many people latched on the way they did. I think it has something to do with just the fact that that such a big movie star was so passionate about bringing the project to light finally after so much turmoil pre-production and the fact that he gave a performance that we weren't used to seeing him give. So I appreciate it from that standpoint, but for me it's just fine. But Graham, let's hear from you the most overrated movie of the year. Well, I agree with you on Moneyball. And for me, you know, the thing about Moneyball is, as as we know, is that uh, it was supposed to be a different movie. And I think I'll... We all still think, you know, about what could have been. That being said, I also enjoyed it and really had a great time. But, you know, it's it's not a four-star movie in my opinion. I mean, it's not on my list. It definitely is hovering around. I, I would also include it in the honorable mention. That being said, I think Drive was overrated majorly. Like I said, the movie didn't live up to to its first 10 minutes in my opinion. So let that be known and said, and I think that, you know, history will agree with me. And Ben, you know, I'm not going to call Contagion overrated because I did like it and I want to see it again and give it another chance. And, you know, I'm, I'm ignorant about movies I have been in the past, like The Matrix. I thought that Matrix was weak the first time I saw it. And then I ended up loving it and get, becoming obsessed with it. And I love that movie to this day. So maybe that'll happen with Contagion. Hopefully it does. Whether or not it will happen for my number one most overrated movie of the year, The Tree of Life, is another question entirely. <laughs> you heard uh, me. I think The Tree of Life is, I understand people really want to love this movie. <laughs> I wanted to also. Uh, I just feel like people need to call a spade a spade and uh, just admit that the movie is is like a, a very expensive student film with, you know, maybe it has good intentions or it did at one point, but does get, as you said, Corey at times obtuse and you know I'm again I've only seen it one time and I'd like to have the matrix effect with tree of life but I don't know I I remember walking out of it just thinking no this isn't the ultimate Terrence Malick movie I mean I I hope you I hope you you eventually do I mean I, I I can't I can't try to convince anybody about the tree of life you know it's the sort of movie that either hits you or it doesn't hit you you know hopefully on repeat viewings, it will, but I mean, I know better than to try to talk people into liking a Terrence Malick movie when they don't. It's just, I mean, that's just the kind of filmmaker he is, and it's its so divisive, and it's so, I don't know, uniquely structured and, and built that if you don't like it, you don't like it. I, well, I, think I feel that, bad you know, for I you. think War Horse really answers in, you know, more effectively a lot of the questions that Tree of Life you think? Bases, do you? You think so? Anger. All right. Look, all I know is all that space stuff at the beginning was boring, man. I'm <laughs> just kidding, Corey. Well, let's quickly run through our most underrated of the year. Let's be a little quicker with this. My most underrated of the year, uh, Corey, you're a big fan of this movie, but it's just amazing to me that not enough people are talking about it. And while I think Dangerous Method could qualify for this, I think Jason Reitman's film Young Adult did not get the look that it probably deserved. That's my pick as well. I mean, for the reasons that we've talked about. And Graham, you're most underrated? Most underrated, it's obvious. An obvious choice. It's War Horse. 
still just confounds me to this day, you know, that this movie has only made 133 million worldwide. You could blame the running time, but I don't know what it was. I, and, and you got to look at Disney and DreamWorks, you know, what, what went wrong? You know, what went wrong? Why, why did this not connect on a global basis? You're telling me Slumdog Millionaire can, but Warhorse can't. <laughs> I mean, there's so much in this movie that the entire world should be able to enjoy and embrace. So I'm guessing that this is also your biggest disappointment of 2011. Uh, no, that would be a tree of life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a biggest disappointment? Definitely the rum diary. You know, after more than 10 years, they get Johnny Depp to reprise his role that he played so well in fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And it just sadly, after so much time results in a movie that it just plods along and, and is not in, for me, wasn't worthy of the source material and does not really even begin to make the effort made by Terry Gilliam in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Big disappointment to get that kind of talent back to, to reprise a role, which happens so you know rarely these days, and to, to uh, kind of miss the opportunity there. Well, my biggest disappointment was actually Joe Johnston's film, Captain America, The First Avenger. And that's not to say that the movie is all that bad. It just didn't really live up to many of the expectations I guess I had for it. I, I thought that they were going to sort of continue on the same path of something like Iron Man, just in terms of like a really solid origin film here with a really and I think that they had a really nice foundation to draw upon with that movie but there were some improvements they could have made I just didn't think the script was especially good I thought Chris Evans was a fantastic choice for the role and he gave a good performance I didn't care for the villain of Red Skull and how he was pulled off I thought it was incredibly silly and I know I'm talking about a comic book movie here but it just didn't totally gel for me I guess it had a lot of the right parts but they just didn't really go in the right places I guess I really like that movie. Yeah. Uh, my two big disappointments of 2011, as I already mentioned, David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, one of my favorite directors. You know, though a second viewing was much kinder to that movie, I'll admit, I don't think it lives up to the promise of his filmmaking and his potential. And then also George Clooney's The Ides of March, which is a movie that you and I were uh, greatly concerned with, I guess, when we discussed that on the show. We just talk about wasted potential, both with the cast and, and the, the crew there, the filmmaking crew. You expected something that the movie just didn't deliver and never really even tried to deliver. Well, uh, that does it for 2011. Finally, we're done here. Good riddance. And while, while we can, I just want to get, since he's been so patient with us, Andrew, our producer here, who's not mic'd up right now, but I would like to uh, get your favorite film of 2011, if you don't mind sharing that with us, Andrew. And thanks again for just uh, being such a trooper with us during this film year. We really appreciate what you've brought to it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's It's been a lot of fun. You know, I haven't really thought, I don't, I, I don't usually think in terms of favorite movie and maybe if i had you know thought about this prepared a little bit more but i'll say one that has stuck with me the longest and that i really liked was 50 50 i'm personally affected a lot by movies that i can relate to really well and i think something about the main character's life position and plus the fact that it is such a great movie such an emotional movie and it does have comedy but it's certainly not all comedy it has a lot of other things to offer besides just a lot of laughs for me 50-50, I think, is the one that has, has stuck with me the most, and I wish that it had gotten a little more attention just from the general public. I totally agree. That's a great pick. Hi, guys. Ben Stark here, director of The Nocturnal Third and co-founder of Wonder Mill Films up here in Huntsville. Thanks for having my opinion on the show. My favorite performance of 2011 is Michael Shannon in Take Shelter. 
closely edging out Jessica Chastain in the same movie. I think that uh, Shannon's performance and the film itself are both very timely for a cultural moment without being vague. Shannon's madness is always kind of on the edges of his performance, but it never wanders into cliche. And Chastain, what's great about her performance is that she reacts to his madness and involves herself in his struggle in a really wonderful, real, and honest way. The movie is a great image of what marriage can be and should be required viewing for couples looking to get hitched. My favorite scene of the year is a bit of a cheat. It's uh, more of a montage than a self-contained scene. It's the quote-unquote childhood sequence in Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, wherein we witness Jack's birth and infancy. What makes this sequence so powerful, it's not just its dreamlike quality and its necessity as a cinematic narrative. It's a narrative that can only be told through cinema, but also it's special because of its place in the overall movie. Malik juxtaposes the birth and infancy of a man against the birth and infancy of the entire universe and gives us a perspective that the Job of the opening quote of the movie uh, was never awarded. So uh, Tree of Life childhood sequence, a lot of other great sequences in that movie could have made the cut too, including the dinosaurs. My favorite film of the year has changed numerous times in the last couple of months. For a while it was Super 8, then it was Martha Marcy May Marlene. Immediately after seeing War Horse, that took the cake, and in recent weeks I've been flip-flopping between Tree of Life and Take Shelter. Now I gotta make the call that's gonna be forever stitched into the Aspect Radio tapestry, and I'm gonna go with the best film of 2011, War Horse. It's stuck around. Plenty of 2011 movies looked at cinema history lovingly and kind of observed cinema history, but War Horse broke its loving gaze and actually personified cinematic history. It wears the clothes of Ford and Lawton and Lean very respectfully, but simultaneously it functions as an earnest, ultimate Spielberg movie. It happens to be classicist and progressive within Spielberg's resume. It borrows from E.T., Empire of the Sun, and even borrows from Jaws in the way that it looks at that kind of human experience or the foibles of human experience through the eyes of a subtly anthropomorphic animal. Above all, like all Spielberg stories, it looks at the loss of an eternal search for home that's really at the heart of all Spielberg movies, and it, it might have never been more clear than in War Horse. Thanks again, guys. Team War Horse, signing out. Okay, now playing in theaters nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. The artist is back in theaters, so if you can, catch it before Sunday or just as soon as you can before it disappears from Tuscaloosa again. That's going to be at the Cobb Hollywood 16. Wonderlust, the new David Wayne film starring Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston and so many of the state alumni, uh, along with Justin Theroux and Malin Ackerman, Tyler Perry's Good Deeds, which as Graham would say, is waiting to get spoofed, is starting this weekend. Act of Valor, which has real Navy SEALs in it, by the way, in case you didn't know. What? And this Amanda Seyfried thing called Gone, which looks horrible. So people just go see the artist. That's your best bet this weekend. Well, you can find us now on aspectradio.net. You can email any of your feedback to feedback at aspectradio.net. Or find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash aspectradio or on Facebook at facebook.com slash aspectradio. You can download this and other episodes of the show at aspectradio.net. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook and check us out on al.com and tusk205.com. Find us on iTunes with a quick search or click the link on our blog. 
You can read Corey's DVD column in Tusk Magazine every Friday in the Tuscaloosa News or on Tusk205.com, and you can follow his Tusk Movie Twitter account at Corey Tusk Movies. Be sure to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, FilmNerds.com, where you're going to find the latest edition of the dreaded Shelf of Shame, written by me this time, and I'd rather not get into what's on my list at the risk of further humiliation. So check it out. You're going to have a great time watching all those movies. <laughs> it's like so much humiliation is rewarded with such joy at the movies. I don't know what I've done to deserve this. The Scaliches and I have actually launched a new AL.com podcast that we post on Fridays. It's called the AL.com Flick Fix, where we break down and recommend what's new in theaters each weekend. So check that out soon. It'll be posted this Friday as well. And thanks again to you, Graham, all the way up in New York City. We appreciate the time. I know you're busy. Well, uh, I'm, I'm happy to run through my Oscar predictions real quick. I think The Artist is going to win Best Picture. I think it's going to split. Scorsese is going to get Best Director. Actor, Dujardin. Actress, this is tough. I'm going to predict Meryl Streep. I guess supporting actor, isn't that exciting? Plumber, I guess, is going to win. Are you guys happy with that, by the way? Yeah, I'm fine with I'm it. I'm fine with yeah. it, too. It's, a very, it's an excellent performance in a really good movie, which is slightly underrated itself. And I guess supporting actress, you know, even though I wish it was Berenice Bejeau, I think Octavia Spencer is going to win for the help. I agree with all of your picks, except for actress. I think Viola Davis is going to win. But I'm with you with Scorsese. I've got to go with Hosanna Vicious for the artist. I don't know. I just think it's going to be an artist sweep. I'd love to see Scorsese win. And I read in an Entertainment Weekly article recently where they anonymously get Academy voters to talk about that. the reasons they're voting. And the studio executive's reason for voting for Hosanna Vicious was Martin Scorsese already won one recently. So... Had he not won one for The Departed, I would have definitely voted for Hugo. So instead, I'm going to give it to, as he put, the artist guy. So that kind of voting makes me sick, although Michelle Hazanavicius certainly deserves the accolade, and the artist is going to win Best Picture. So regardless, it's all going to happen. You know, if there is a split, that'd be fantastic because Scorsese and some of the other directors that are in the category deserve it. Thanks again, Graham. We appreciate it. Thanks again to our friends from Matt and Craig and others for joining us. Always appreciate it. And as always, thanks to our producer, Andrew Richardson, for his contributions. And until next week, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This was fun. We should do it again sometime. <laughs> this is Aspect Radio. As always, thanks so much for listening.